Welcome to another all-new episode of The Word and the Glass. Thank you all so much for choosing to spend a few precious moments of your valuable time with us. The Word in the Glass is a podcast by the saints for the saints, dedicated to finding answers in the only source of truth, the Word of God. We are devoted to sound doctrine and biblical theology, the building up of the church, and the encouragement of the faithful. This is our last week before all new Roundtable episodes return. We have taken about a month or so off in order to get some things in order. By the grace of God, when we come back next week, you will hear some new voices and you will notice some familiar voices absent. We have shrunk the core group and are going for a more revolving door type platform for guests at the table. Upcoming topics include prayer, what it means to be a people of prayer, what it means to be in constant prayer and how to do that, when politics become spiritual warfare, and conviction versus guilt. I'm very excited to get back to the table. I do hope you've enjoyed the From the Pulpit to the Podcast series thus far, and it won't be going anywhere. We will still be sprinkling those sermons in every now and then, but we will be getting back to the roundtable topical discussions as of next week. And what a way to end a month of sermons here at The Word in the Glass. In this episode, we hear from Bob Hausman once again, as he follows up on his last sermon from Acts. This message is all about prayer. It is not secondary, but a primary need. I am so thankful that Bob shared this with me, as it is a great way to not only end the sermon series, but lead us into next week's discussion on prayer. It is always so encouraging to see how living and relevant the Word of God is, no matter what age we find ourselves in. This sermon was preached three years ago, but it is just as timely and just as essential now as it was then. Let's go now to Bob and his sermon titled, Calling Upon the Sovereign Lord When Confronted with Threats and Opposition. Well, good morning to you. The Lord is good to us, is He not? every Sunday to grant us the privilege of gathering and uniting our hearts, recounting His mercy, His grace, that He is God of us all, all of us creatures. He's made us and He sustains us. And so we do, we pray, we sing praise and hallelujah to Him. We, if you are a believer in Jesus, you were once lost. But now you're found because he, he led you to the cross and to Christ. You heard a message you believed. And so we sing, all I have is Christ. And we also sing, I'm no longer a slave to fear. I'm a child of God. What great truth to gather and unite our voices and hearts in. And may the Lord now continue his goodness towards us as we worship him through his word preached and heard and believed. We're going to be in Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 23. And before we get there, you can be turning there in your Bibles. Just an elder reminder. Last week, if you remember, the reminder was about expository preaching. Why we, as a church, are deliberate in expounding the Word of God through whole books 
indeed through the whole Bible, if God would give us that many days in our lives, we're committed to that because we want to hear all that God says and not just focus on maybe our favorite or our pet, easy-to-hear parts of the Bible. That was last week. Today, I want to remind us about our vision. It's related to expository preaching. It's about our, our vision at SBC, what, what we hope for. And our vision at SBC is simply faithfulness. To be found faithful. To be found faithful as people of God when Jesus comes again. Should we see him split the skies? And if you read Ephesians and if you read Colossians, both of those churches are faithful churches. And what marks a faithful church are two things. Growing faith in Jesus and growing love for the brethren. All of that fueled by a hope in the gospel. Faithfulness. That's where we want to be. We want our faith in Jesus to grow, our love for the, each other to grow. We want all that to come out of our feet planted on the gospel, the rock of the gospel of Jesus. So we want to faithfully gather. We want to faithfully encourage and equip each other through the word. We want to faithfully pray together. We want to faithfully unite our hearts and voices in worship. We want to faithfully meet each other's needs, moving towards those needs. We want to faithfully make disciples and all of that so we grow in our faith in Jesus and our love for each other. So that's a reminder about our vision at SBC, faithfulness. May the Lord now grow up into a faithful people by grace, even now as we open His Word. So do that. Open your Bibles. Stand with me if you would. And we're going to read Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 23. We'll go through verse 31. By the way, there are sermon uh, note-taking papers on the back on the sound booth there if you missed those. Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 23. When... The disciples had been released. They went to their own companions and reported all the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise fetal things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord. And against his Christ. For truly in this city there were gathered against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. Let's pray. Father, indeed, 
You are the creator of all things. All creatures of our God and King look to you and praise you. Your works are fantastic. So we praise you and and confess you alone are God and you alone are sovereign King. And what power that is, Lord. And we need that power because we are powerless. Our hearts, our fallen hearts, have the upper hand. And the forces of nature and the fallenness of man press upon us continually. And we are powerless. But you are great and powerful, Lord. And so we beseech you to come, to take note of our powerlessness and to grant, to come and grant change in your people. Grant the dead to come to life through faith in Jesus. Grant the wayward to be brought back powerfully. Grant the, the, those who are succumbed to the power of sin for that power to be broken in their lives. Lord, you do that. And we pray you do that this morning. We pray you do that continually in the life of this church. Because you're great and mighty. We, we pray you extend your hand to so act upon us. So Lord, come. We are dependent upon you this morning. We are dependent upon you in, to be in the words spoken and to be in the ears and the hearts receiving these words so that we're not left the same. So we look to you to do that and eagerly expect you to answer these prayers for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Our primary focus this morning is going to be on prayer. We've basically just read a prayer. Corporate, unified prayer to a sovereign God. You see that here. In verse 23, get a taste of it. When the disciples released, they went to their own, the church. They reported all the chief priests and elders have said. And when the church heard this, they lifted their voice to God with one accord and said, O Lord. And then they began a, a prayer. So we're looking at prayer this morning. And I've entitled the sermon simply calling upon the sovereign Lord when confronted with threats and opposition. Calling upon God who is sovereign when confronted with threats and opposition. That's basically a summary of what's happened in this text. And that's where we will center our thinking. So a couple of preparatory Questions that, that sort of maybe will, I think some, some of these questions will get at some of the things that this text will press us towards. It might be good for us to think in these lines. And here's the first question What is your reaction when you encounter adversity and hardship? What's your first reaction? When you're threatened, when you're opposed, maybe by others? In the workforce or maybe by governmental forces, what is your first reaction? Is it to gather with the saints and pray? Does that automatically come? That's what I do. Number two, if you gather and pray with the saints, what marks or what characterizes what comes out of your mouth individually and corporately? What marks your prayers? Are your prayers rooted in a man-centered view of the world and of the priorities of the world and of man-centered needs? 
That might look like the publican. You remember the story Jesus told of the publican who comes and so everybody could hear him. He begins to pray and says, God, I thank you that I am not like him because I tithe and I fast and I do all these religious things. Is your prayer rooted in man-centeredness or is it rooted in God-centeredness? And third, so that was that second question, is what marks or what characterizes your prayers? And number three is do your prayers, do you pray to God to change you? Yes, change for your brothers and sisters to change, to grow in Christ. But do you pray for God to change you, to, for your behavior to be changed? And when you do that, do you expect Him to actually answer you? Do you pray in faith, believing He hears and He acts? All those questions, I think, will come out of our text. Maybe answers or perspectives on those questions. My desire and my hope is that the Lord would so convince us, this church, of His omnipotent sovereignty over all things... That we would always go to Him in prayer as a church, especially, especially when faced with pending calamity and adversity and opposition. So may the Lord come and do that. Okay, so we're going to be starting in verse 23 of Acts chapter 4. And I hope you will follow along in your Bible. We'll be flipping them back and forth a little bit. But, but just so you know the context of where we are. In chapter 3, Peter and John had healed a lame man. A man born lame for 40 years, lame. And a crowd formed because of this miracle, this, the hand of God acting. And Peter goes and proclaims Jesus to the crowd. Jesus Christ crucified and Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Jesus Christ Savior. And he calls the crowd to repent and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. You see it there in verse 19 in chapter 3. He says, Jesus is Christ. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away. And I love this verse. I... I love this verse. The promise of Jesus is so clear here. Your sins can be wiped away in Christ. Therefore, turn from your sins and return to Jesus. In faith, embrace Jesus. That's the call. And not only that, but times of refreshing. The Holy Spirit, God's presence will be with you. That's the promise. Peter preaches that. And many do hear and believe that message. That's how you become a believer. That's how you become His. You hear this message and you embrace it and you believe Christ. And many are added, about 5,000. It's all context. Well, the authorities do not like this. Verse 2, chapter 4, they are greatly disturbed, enough to imprison them. Because they're, they're, they're preaching Jesus Christ risen from the dead. And the people are believing. 5,000 people now in the church. And so they, they gather the disciples. And in verse 18 of chapter 4, they command them no longer to teach in the name of Jesus. And when they had summoned the disciples, the authorities commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. 
This was last week. And of course, the disciples, in the face of this threat, this opposition, they just, and it's a, it's a serious opposition. Not only is it imprisonment, they were just imprisoned. I think death is on the line, or life is on the line. Because these are the same murderous authorities who killed Jesus for less. And, and so, or at least the same. And the disciples display great courage and conviction. And they boldly declare they must obey God and not man and not government in these matters. Verse 19. But Peter and John answered the authorities and said to them, Whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. We cannot stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. We've been with Jesus. We are different now. We've seen Him alive and we cannot stop speaking about this truth. And God has commissioned us to do this. We will obey God. This is context. You have this serious threat, a costly threat, a life-threatening threat of the authorities, and it's in direct conflict with the, the, the commands of God, the commission of the church. So that's adversity. That's opposition. That's potential calamity. And it's not only for these, at least Peter and John, these two individuals, but it extends beyond them to the whole church. So the question, that's, that's context, right before we start verse 23. And the question is, what, what would you do? What do you do in the face and the threat of opposition and conflict and adversity? Do you call a good lawyer? Do you do a Facebook rant? Get on social media and rally like-minded? Or maybe you just decide to get along and conform and just quiet down. Well, that brings us to our text. And we'll look at the necessity of prayer as our first heading. The necessity of prayer. The first reaction to adversity of the disciples is to gather first, in verse 23, is to gather with the church to share each other's burdens. You see that in verse 23? When the disciples who had been threatened had been released... They went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. First reaction, gather with the saints. As a priority, the disciples go to their own, to their companions, to their fellow believers, to the, to the family of God, the household of God. And they report, they tell, they share, they relate all that they had experienced at the hands of these civic and religious authorities. They share their burdens, their burden of adversity and threat. That's the first thing they do, but that's not all. Then the gathered church prays, verse 24. The gathered church prays. And when the church heard this, when they heard this burden and this threat, they lifted their voice to God with one accord and said, Oh Lord, and they began to pray. 
the gathered church prays, the spontaneous outflow of being confronted with adversity and potential calamity and threatening opposition, the, the spontaneous outflow of that is to pray. It's to cry out to God. The church, the gathered church, prays when opposed and when facing adversity. So when you hear naysayers in our society who ridicule prayer in the face of national tragedies, know at least as a believer, it's right, it's appropriate for believers to gather and pray in the midst of adversity. That's what the church does. And a couple of notes about this before we pray. Look in verse 24, it says, this is about how prayer was corporate. When they heard, the church, when they heard, they lifted their voices. All pray. Maybe it's many voices quietly extolling God and praying to God. Maybe it's one voice dominant and others saying amen and yes and joining. No one's passive. It's a corporate crying out to God. And not only that, it's unified. You see that? They, verse 24 still, they lifted their voice with one accord. They're unified. They're all on the same page in the sense of urgency, the sense of need to pray, and what to pray. With one accord, they lifted their voice to God. I think this reaction in our text of the church in the face of adversity illustrates the necessity and the priority of prayer. Prayer is fundamental to life as a believer and it's fundamental to, to the life and the inner workings of the church. It's not optional. It's not secondary. It's not a fallback position. Well, I guess we'll have to pray. It's primary. Stephen had a quote on the thing that, that revolved the announcements. And it was an Edwards quote. I had to write it down because it says, Edwards says, Prayer is as a natural expression of faith as breathing is to life. If you have faith in God, you're going to pray, especially in the face of adversity. Prayer is how God chooses to act for His people. He chooses to act in our midst through prayer, through His people asking. Remember what James says? You have not. Why? Because you ask not. So, as a priority, the church gathers in unity to pray. The church does, especially, especially when confronted with adversity and opposition. If you remember back in Acts chapter 1 when we started our journey in Acts, we did a sermon on the first acts of the church, and one of them was prayer. After Jesus had ascended to heaven, the disciples gathered together and they prayed. Verse 14 in chapter 1, these all, the, the disciples, the apostles, the followers of Jesus, these all, with one mind, were continually devoted themselves to prayer. It's a natural expression of faith as breathing is to life. Edwards is right. 
There's an ethos in the church of ongoing, expectant interaction with God. They're devoted, they're dedicated, it takes effort, they exert effort to pray. This is the necessity of prayer. The necessity of prayer. Friends, see the necessity of prayer individually and corporately, especially when we encounter threats and adversity. We're a desperately dependent people. And praise God, our God hears. And He acts through prayer for us. So may our first reaction to calamity be to share our burden with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And then may we all, with one accord, lift our voices to God. By the way, there are aids and helps in that. Michael texted me a a prayer aid. There are great ways that you can be interconnected and pray. We have email chains. We have a prayer box out in the back. Phone calls. There's lots of ways you can gather to pray. And I encourage you brothers and sisters to do that. May we be a people continually devoted to the necessity of prayer. The priority of prayer. Because a gathered church prays. So notice that about our text. The the necessity of prayer. And also notice the next heading here. The God-centeredness of prayer. The gathered church prays and there's a God-centeredness in their prayer. God, as omnipotent creator and sustainer, roots, grounds the prayers of the church. You see in verse 24, again, when they heard this, they lifted their voice to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. That's a a rootedness in God as creator. The church begins their prayer, their desperate plea. They, They begin their prayer, their cry out to God in the face of this threat. They begin by acknowledging God as powerful creator. We sang about how awesome creation is this morning. We live in this creation. I hope you take time to appreciate and glory in the creation. His works are great. God's works are awesome. Whether you examine a flower or see the grass and the trees grow or watch the deer or the raccoons or whatever, the birds, the scarlet tanagers or the hummingbirds or whatever it is, I pray you're tuned to how magnificent creation is. Whether it's intricate or the immense, whether you're looking at a, a microscope at the atoms and the, the, the ma- a macroscope or a telescope, look at the heavens. Creation is awesome. The church knows that and they're confessing all of that to be His doings. Lord, You made the heavens and the earth, the sea, all that's in them. You made it and You sustain it. And when they do that, when they acknowledge God as Creator, they're acknowledging God as great and powerful and magnificent and wise and mighty. Confessing God as creator makes God the source and faithful sustainer of all things. And He is. Even of your life, He sustains your life. That's important when you're threatened. Who holds your life? 
The Lord, He is our God. He is our Creator. That's where we start in prayer. That's where we start. This is who we cry out to. The reality that God is omnipotent Creator. That's where we start when we pray. But that's not all. In this text, look at verse 20. I'm skipped down to 27 and 28. Listen to what they say. The church with a united voice say, Truly, in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Not only is God omnipotent creator, but because he's omnipotent creator, he's also sovereign Lord. He does whatever his purpose predestined to occur. He extends his hand to act. The church is acknowledging that all that happens in history, all that happens in history, certainly, specifically here in this text, redemptive history, all that happens, happens at the hand of God, happens according to God's purpose and what He foreordains to happen. He reigns. He is sovereign God. He rules over all things. He controls all things. He purposes all things. All peoples, all nations, and their histories are the workings of God. Nature, weather events, the world's history of all volcanoes, all earthquakes, is the hand of God. He's in control of all things, all elections, all wars, all revolutions. It's the hand of God. God purposes what He wills. He's in control of all things, all discoveries, all technologies, all life, your life. All your days are numbered when yet before they're written in the book, before they are, the psalmist tells us. The church, the history of the church is by the hand of God. It ebbs and flows according to His purposes, all things. He is sovereign, Lord, especially the crucifixion of Jesus, His redemptive plan. It was all the hand of God bringing about His will to save sinners for Himself. Brothers and sisters, the Lord reigns. That roots our prayers. It grounds our prayers. Our prayers are rooted here in the reality of our sovereign, omnipotent Creator God. Friends, the, the reality of who God is, that is what roots, that's what grounds, that's what shapes our prayers as the church. Because He's omnipotent and because He is sovereign, because that's who He is, we have confidence to pray. We're not praying to someone who may be able to do something. He's sovereign. He's creator of all things. And He purposes and tends all things. He controls all things. And He's generous and kind and loving and faithful. And He hears and He's active in history, not aloof. Therefore, we, the church, pray unceasingly. And certainly we should pray and do pray when calamities threaten to overwhelm us. Listen to an example out of the Old Testament. This is Hezekiah. If you know the story of Hezekiah, he's surrounded by a very arrogant king of Assyria who's already wiped out many nations and most of Israel, and now he surrounds Jerusalem. And he's threatening King Hezekiah and all the people with destruction. Listen to... 
I'm asserting that the people of God's prayers to God are rooted in His sovereignty and in, in Him as Creator. Listen to that in 2 Kings. Listen to Hezekiah. He takes this letter, which, and he lays it before God, and he says this, verse 15 of 2 Kings 19, O Lord, O Lord, the God of Israel, we're your people, who are enthroned above the cherubim. You, your throne is in heaven. You rule from heaven. You are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. That's a high view of God. You rule all kingdoms, Lord God. You've made the heavens and the earth your creator. Therefore, because you're sovereign, Lord and creator, incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see and listen to the words of the king of Assyria, which he sent to reproach the living God. That's a God-centered prayer. Prayers of the church are God-centered. So friends, may our desperate pleas to God be like this, rooted in a high view of God. May our prayers be God-centered, focused on His greatness and His might and His sovereignty and His willingness and His ability to hear and see and act for His namesake, for His people. And that's the point, that the church prays God-centered prayers. Which brings us to our next heading. It's, they're not only God-centered prayers, they are Word-centered prayers. You, you hear the echo of the Word. The Word saturates the prayers of the saints. See in verse 24? Back to verse 24. When they had heard of this calamity, pending calamity, they lifted their voice to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that's in them. They're quoting Psalm 146. That declaration that God is creator of all, that's a quoting of Psalm 146 in Nehemiah 9. That, that makes sense though, right? Their understanding of God comes from the Word because they know God has spoken to them to reveal Himself to them. And so they know God's Creator because the Word says that. So it makes sense that His Word is going to influence their prayers and out from their mouth comes a declaration that God is Creator. So you see it there in verse 24. It's a Word-centered prayer. The word saturates the prayer. You see it also in verses 25 and 26. God, you, by the Holy Spirit, through our father David, your servant, said, God, you said, verse 25, the middle of the verse, and then they quote Psalm 2, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand. The rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His Christ. The church here quotes Psalm 2. They, and notice they acknowledge it's God's Word. God spoke by the Holy Spirit through David. It's God's Word. But second, they affirm that this passage predicts Messiah, the coming of Messiah, which the disciples experienced. They're, they were right in the midst of this. The psalm predicts how the people, the rulers, are going to do futile things. The futile thing of mounting a rebellion against the Lord and against His Christ. That's futile. And of course, that is exactly what happened. 
Jews and the Gentiles, the rulers, the peoples, rage against God and against His Christ. And they kill Him. They crucify Him. But they didn't realize how futile their efforts were because their actions really were all part of God's sovereign, redemptive, victorious purpose and plan. That's what, that's what we read in 27 and 28. Verse 27, that's what happened, they say. The nations gathered against Jesus, verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And we know what that was. That was the crucifixion of Jesus for the sins of sinners and the raising of Him from the dead. So the people, the rulers, they want, they want to throw off God's rule. But they, they didn't end up doing that. Instead, they played a role in establishing God's rule. Because Jesus was obedient to the point of death, death on the cross, and therefore God highly exalted Him. He became King. So in their intention to throw off the rule of God and His Christ, they established the rule of Jesus. Oh, the depth of the wisdom of God and so carrying out a fantastic purpose and plan. My point here is this. The church knows. The church understands. The church, by grace, is fluent in the Word. And that Word-centeredness shapes everything about them. What comes out of their mouth in prayer. How they view God. How they view the events in history. And, of course, how they pray. It is Word-centered prayer. The Word informs and shapes their prayers. And, friends, I want to pause here and just point to God's redemptive plan that is so echoed here in Psalm 2, quoted by the church. There is an age-old conflict in the world. Man raging against God and against His Christ. Rebelling, wanting to throw off the rule of God in their life. Although made to enjoy God and flourish in His creation, they chose rebellion. And we're all born that way. Trapped in that rebellion, unable, powerless to affect it. And so we're under God's wrath. But God sovereignly used even the sin of man the sin of the nations, to bring about redemption through Jesus, sending His Son to be crucified for our sin. And the, the, Jesus' death was payment for sin to free us from the captivity, the debt of sin that we owe, the debt of the penalty of sin we owe. Paid it all. And we know Jesus paid it all because God raised Him from the dead, triumphant over sin and over death. That's the gospel. That's the good news. All who believe, and that's the call, call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. This Jesus saves powerfully by His death and resurrection for you and for me. So the call this morning is to remember this gospel. Maybe you've been in church a hundred times and you've heard even from this pulpit gospel proclamations similar to this and you know you've never embraced that. And I just encourage you afresh, we prayed that this morning, that you would turn to Jesus and embrace Jesus. And maybe you are an experienced or a seasoned believer in Jesus, but you are caught in the throes of sin. And sin grips your life. Or maybe you're defeated by 
ailments that discourage you. Maybe your mind is trapped in discouragement. And I just encourage you to look to Jesus. To know that His gospel is the bedrock under your feet. To see your sins, as we read in verse 19, wiped away. Wiped away through faith in Jesus. That makes the lame man leap for joy. It makes those who've been forgiven of a great debt leap for joy. May your heart leap for joy in Jesus. Believe in Jesus. Believe in that Jesus saves. Our point here this morning is this. When the church encounters adversity. They gather, they unite in prayer. Their prayers are God-centered prayers and their prayers are word-centered prayers. Rightly so. Our prayers should be word-centered. And may the Lord so root us in His word that our understanding of life is filtered through the word and thus our prayers, our petitions to God are drip with the word of God. Which brings us to our last characteristic of the prayers. It's the desperate dependence that's acknowledged in prayer. There's a desperate dependence that's acknowledged in the prayers of the saints. Just the fact that the disciples pray a God-centered prayer and a word-centered prayer, I think that fact alone betrays and displays a desperate dependence. I, I think what, what the disciples are basically saying is this. There's, they're saying, Lord, we are powerless. We are powerless to withstand this threat against us. But you are creator of all things. And you have spoken a word and brought it about by your sovereign hand. You're not powerless. We're powerless. You're not powerless. And that's why they say in verse 29, Now, Lord, take note of their threats. That's a confession of dependence. Lord, Lord you've got to take note of these threats. We, we can't do anything about it. You can, your creator, your sovereign. Take note of these threats. The church is asking the Lord to act appropriately for the church in light of their present threats of the church because the church is powerless in themselves. Take note implies protect. It implies thwart the enemy. Deliver us. Let us go on not being cowered by these threats. In fact, that's what they do next. The powerless disciples pray for power. Powerless disciples pray for power. You see that in verse 9? Take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. Powerless praying for power. The church is asking God to intervene. In history, now, now, take note of the threats, grant power, intervene directly in our lives, in our experience. Change us, Lord. Change us from being timid and afraid and reluctant and hesitant and protective of this life now. Change us. Change us to being confident and bold and unafraid of man, and courageous in this life now. Change us. Lord, act, grant that we may speak your word with all confidence. That's the powerless praying for power. To be confident proclaimers of the word. 
They're going to need to be confident proclaimers of the Word in the light of continual opposition. That's not all they pray for. Besides praying for power, the church prays for miraculous signs. You see that there in verse 30? Lord, grant that your, your servants may speak with all confidence. Verse 30, while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant Jesus. They want signs and wonders to take place by God's hand. They're asking for divine signs. And I believe what these are are message-confirming signs. Just like happened in chapter 3 when the sign of the healing of the lame man, that's a sign to confirm that something's going on in this message these guys are talking. It's a divine message. You need to take note of this message. It's a divine message confirming sign of healings and wonders in Jesus' name. What do we do with this verse? Well, since we have the divine Word of God already confirmed, this is the divine Word of God. We don't need signs to confirm the Word, but we do pray for signs. We pray for signs all over the place. We pray for the miraculous signs to flow from bold proclaiming of the Word that the dead are made alive. The spiritually dead are made alive. That's a work of God for that to happen. Or for the power of sin to be broken in your life. That's the power of God. Or for you to grow in faith. What does Paul say in the Corinthians? He says, we watered, God caused the increase. That's what we pray for. We pray, Lord, do that. Extend your hand to cause the spiritually dead to live and to call the babes in Christ to grow, to cause us to mature. You've got to do that. So we pray for signs to that. The point is this. The church is powerless. We're powerless. What a great place to be. We're powerless, and that's why we pray to a powerful God, an omnipotent, sovereign God. And, and in our text, the church is acknowledging their desperate dependence. They acknowledge it by confessing that God is sovereign, and that God is creator, and God is omnipotent. And then they ask God to act directly in their circumstance, upon them, to grant them change and power. Change us! So they can be faithful in carrying out their commission, which God has called them to do. Proclaim Christ and make disciples of all nations. So friends, we, the church, we too, like, like the early church, are powerless against the various forces arrayed against us. The buffeting of Satan. The threats of fallen man doing the bidding of Satan. As we're seeing increasing in our society. The adversity of a fallen, decaying, dying world. We, all of that, all of that, we are powerless to change that in and of ourselves. But we belong to an omnipotent and sovereign God. Omnipotent and sovereign God. And so may we confess our dependence upon Him and we cry out to Him and may, may we together with one voice ask for strength and confidence and courage 
and protection and deliverance and powerful displays of His wonders in our midst as He changes us, as He changes hearts and minds for Him. Well, that brings us to the last verse in our text. is verse 31. And the awesome thing about prayer is that God answers prayer. And that's exactly what He did. This is the answer to prayer. God graciously answers prayers of a desperate people. Verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the Word of God with boldness. God answers prayer. God answers prayer. You, you, you see, the first thing He does there, He shakes the place. Remember, they, they prayed for signs. Here comes the shaking of the place. The place where they gather was shaking. And then, the second answer to the prayer is they're all filled with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit lands upon the people and they begin to boldly speak the Word of God. That's what they prayed for. Lord, grant that we may speak Your Word with all confidence. And God lands on them. And I, I don't think they just speak to one another. I think they go out the doors into the world and boldly, that's why you need to be bold, boldly proclaim the Word of God. God answers prayer. That is answered prayer. God hears and God delights to answer prayers and give good gifts to His children. I know that from Luke 11. I've used this verse before. If This is Jesus speaking. He says, If you then, being evil... <laughs> he doesn't beat around the bush. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more, God's not evil, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? What a promise. God desires and delights to give you good gifts, to give you the Holy Spirit. Friends, be an expectant, prayerful person. Be an expectant, prayerful person. He loves to give good gifts like, like the pouring out of the Spirit upon you. Expect the Father to answer your prayers. Expect Him to answer your prayers. He has purposes and plans for you because He is for you. He didn't spare His Son. He gave Him up for you and He delights to give you good gifts. He's not a stingy God. He's a, he's a generous God. And he likes to give you good gifts like the filling and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit in and through your life. So pray for that. Pray for that. Pray eagerly and expectantly to our God. So I'm closing. What have we said this morning? What have we said from this text, from, from Acts 4, 23-31? These five things. One, there is a necessity to prayer in the life of the church. The church as a priority gathers together, especially in the face of threat and adversity, with one accord. And we cry out, we pray to God. The necessity of prayer. Prayer is necessary. Number two, those prayers, the prayers of the gathered church, will be God-centered. 
They will acknowledge and focus on and realize that God is omnipotent and sovereign. He rules all things. That gives us confidence to pray. And number three, our prayers will be word-centered, saturated with the word, influenced, shaped, because our lives are shaped by the word. It's going to come out in our prayers by God's grace. And number four, the corporate prayers of the church will acknowledge a powerlessness and a desperate dependence upon God, our powerlessness, our desperate dependence upon God, while we also pray for new power, new power of change within us, and great workings and signs of God to, in our midst. And finally, number five, the prayers of the gathered church will be answered. Expect that. Ex- expect the prayers of the church to be answered by a gracious God who loves to give good gifts to His children like the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. So may the Lord grow us steadily into a praying people. A people who trust His sovereign good hand to act in our lives. To help us walk by the Spirit. To pursue holiness to pursue His great commission as being bold proclaimers of Christ for the sake of Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Indeed, Lord, You alone are God. You alone have made the heavens and the earth. There is purpose and plan in what You do. And you rule all of history. You rule our lives. The history of the nations are yours. And you have brought about a great redemption by your hand in Christ Jesus. Born of a woman. Born under the law at the right time. Crucified for our sins but raised for our justification. Lord, that is your doing and it is great. It is a great work. You are great and powerful. Lord, take note of our circumstance. Take note of our powerlessness, our being weighed down by sin. Or maybe, Lord, being caught in unbelief and not embracing You ever. Lord, take note of that and come and grant grace to Your people. Grant life to the dead who are here and hear this message. Grant faith in the unbelieving this morning. Grant a breaking of the power of sin in our lives. Lord, do that. Do that. Do the hard work in us to make us love you more than all other things. Lord, we just praise you that you are so powerful to act and you will. You will act in our midst graciously by your word. So come, Lord. Take note of our conditions. Take note of our frailty. Cause holiness to spring up in us. Cause the timid to become bold proclaimers. Cause the wayward to be brought back. Cause the weak in faith to be made strong. Do those great signs, Lord. Do those for the glory of Christ. It's in His name we pray. Amen. Why should I sorrow anymore? I trust a Savior slain And safe beneath His sheltering cross Unmoved I shall remain Let Satan and this world now rage You're now alone 
promises in Christ are made immutable and sure. The oath infallible is now my spirit's trust. I know that he who spoke the word is faithful, true and just. He'll bring me on my way unto my journey's end. He'll be my father and my God, my savior and my friend. Nothing on this earth near nor out in the universe far No created thing could ever separate Or tear us apart He who promised is faithful For he has saved So who could reverse it? I could never, no, never Doubt his So all my doubts and fears shall wholly flee away And every mournful night of tears be turned to joyous day All that remains for me is but to love and sing And wait until the angels come to bear me No, no.